Don't you just love worshiping together? I love it. It's fun. It's like my favorite. You know what's my favorite? I love summer. I'm a beach bum. If you don't know that by now, I'm a beach bum. I love all things summer. How many love a good pool party? Anyone love a good pool party? How many think we should get a pool at the church? We'll just have like luau's after church every Sunday. It's pool party season. And that's what I love about the Okanagan. It just starts a little earlier here than it does in other parts of the country. And so if you're watching online, we are in full-blown summer mode here in the Okanagan. We got the Hawaiian shirts and the shorts and sandals at church. It is great. You know, I spent a lot of time around pools in my day. And in fact, I wrote half my sermon this week at the pool here in the city. My daughter was competing in gymnastics in the provincial championships, and she did really great there. Uh, but while I was waiting for her, I was watching people doing laps in the pool, and uh, how many know, I, I don't know if I like public pool viewing, if I'm in the pool, right? You just don't look that cool with your swim cap on and, and whatnot, but, but I think there's three kinds of swimmers in my observation. I've looked at pools, I've been to pool parties, I've been to like the city pool, I've been to the lake. I think there's three kinds of swimmers in the world. Everyone kind of falls into one of three categories. Uh, I think there's the strokers, right? The strokers are the ones, and they're the ones doing the proper form and the breathing technique, right? And they're doing the front crawl and, and they're doing it all. Yeah, that, you can tell I'm not a stroke, right? I'm just kind of like a like giant doggy paddle. That's my, that's my modus operandi. But you can tell the strokers, they got the form down. They usually have the goggles on and they're the ones doing laps in the pool, right? Uh, they've got the strokers. Then we have the splashers. They're the cannonballers, the belly floppers, right? They're the ones throwing the football and, and the, you know, saying, rate my dive you know, all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. Where, where's like the strokers at? Where's, where's the people you do the laps? Like this is serious business getting your exercise in, right? All right, a couple of you. Where's the splashers? You're like, I'm all here to have a good time, right? Well, I think there's one other kind of person and I'm gonna call them the swishers. The swishers are there to cool off and look cool doing it, right? They're the ones that have the sunglasses on and their hair is dry. And usually they are walking around the pool kind of doing something like this. Yeah. <laughs> right? They're just, they're just doing this, looking so cool in the shallow end of the pool. Where's all the swishers at? You're just, I'm here to cool off and look cool. But you know what? You know what brings all these people into, you know what brings them all together in the pool, brings them all into unity? I don't know if you've ever done this before, but have you ever turned the pool into a whirlpool? Have you ever done the whirlpool in the pool? The pool is when you get everyone in the pool and you start circling the pool and you're all going in the same direction. If you've never done it, it's so awesome. You get everyone in the pool moving and as you get moving, the momentum gets the water going and soon that water starts to turn in the pool and it will create some momentum and it will sweep you along. Have you ever done the whirlpool? Some of you, all right. If you haven't done it, you need to do it this summer. Put it on your bucket list. The more you do it, the stronger the flow gets and it starts to push you along. See, everyone working together with a common purpose creates momentum. This morning, I wanna ask you this question. Who wants to be a part of a move of God? Who wants to be a part of a move of God? 
When I say who wants to be a part of a move of God, we talk about a move of God, we often are thinking of a spiritual, supernatural kind of event or a moment where God just seems to show up in a special, intangible way. That's what we often think of when we talk about a move of God. And and I want to be a part of a move of God. I want to be a part of a revival where God moves in a special way. We've we've heard it, we've seen it, and I want to be a part of that. But I also believe that God has called the church to be part of, uh, of a movement, to, to be a part of a move of God. I think the church, as it moves in unity, as it moves in common purpose, creates momentum. And when the church is functioning well and achieving its goal, uh, it creates a move of God. So I want the supernatural move of God, but God has also placed his people, the church, in this place to create movement. How many know that as you go to your, your workplace, you go to your, uh, your school, you go to your neighborhood, as the church, as we, we kind of get all like hyped up, yeah, Sunday, let's do this together. But as we leave this place and we go into our community and we begin, we're basically like doing the whirlpool in our city. We're doing it in our region. We're beginning to move in unison uh, for the things of God, stirring up the waters of what God is doing in our community. I, I heard this week, I was talking to the ladies at Grief Share. They're like, well, there's wrapping up 12 weeks of grief share. They said, it's been amazing. We've had people coming to grief share who don't go to church, uh, who don't go to our church, don't go to any church, and, and they're being exposed to the movement of God. How many know that you bring the presence of God wherever you go, right? And as we move in unison, as we move in, in common uh, um, uh, movement, uh, we're creating this move of God. Unity isn't sameness or uniformity. Unity is diversity harnessed for a common purpose. That's what we're looking for. You know, and, and when, it's just like the pool, when you get everyone moving together, it's a lot of fun. How do we know that when the church is moving together, it's a lot of fun, right? It's a lot of fun, uh, and, and, but what stops church from being fun and what stops every relationship really from being fun is when unity breaks down. When unity breaks down, that's when cooperation crashes, right? That's when power struggles pop up. That's when clash of personality or preference takes over, right? It's not very much fun. It's, it's when pride sets in that it becomes not so fun, right? It's not so fun. And so nothing disrupts momentum or distracts focus. Nothing uh, dissolves our unity or deteriorates relationships like pride. Author C.S. Lewis, he writes, Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Have you ever experienced that? Well, last week we kicked off a five-week sermon series through the book of Philippians. And, and we saw in this book that it's actually the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in this letter, wasn't originally written with chapters, but uh, over the years we've put in chapters and verses to help us identify it and uh, read it a little easier. But it's only four short chapters. And one of the primary themes we've seen through this book is the theme of joy. The theme of joy, the words joy or rejoice, uh, appears uh, 16 times in these four short chapters. And so there's a real uh, overarching theme of joy. And the, and the key verse of Philippians is found in chapter 4, verse 4. It says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, 
rejoice. Would you read this verse with me today on the count of three? One, two, three. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. It's no wonder so many people say Philippians is one of my favorite books. You know, not only is it packed so full of, of theological truths and nuggets, it's a, it's a joyful book. It's a lot to do with joy. And so I want to encourage you this week um, to read through the book of Philippians. As four chapters, it'll probably take you about 25 minutes if you're a good reader and maybe 45 if you're a slow reader. Uh, but I want to encourage you to read through it. Read through it. Find a time this week that you can sit down and read it front to back. It will take you about 25-ish minutes. And, uh, and then uh, maybe that's too much for you, but at least start reading it chapter by chapter, a chapter a week at least, because there's so much good stuff in this. And we're going to be unpacking it. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what you've heard about Christianity. I don't know what you've heard about following Jesus. But somewhere along the line, there's been a really bad rumor started. And the rumor has even been perpetuated by some churchgoers. And the rumor is this. Misery is holy. <laughs> misery is holy. How many know that's been, you know, a rumor of the church? How many know that there's some church people that have given that rumor some credibility? Misery is holy. It's like the more miserable you are, the holier you must be, Right? The more unpleasant you are, the more righteous. Maybe the less joy and the more joy you have squeezed out of you, the closer to Jesus you are, right? The more sour you are, the more spiritual you are. That's a bad rumor, right? Uh, that shouldn't be the case. I want to say today that being miserable doesn't make you holy. It just makes you miserable, <laughs> right? Uh, if you're miserable and Christianity is making you miserable, then I think you're doing it all wrong. The Proverbs, uh, uh, sorry, Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Everyone say joy. joy. Joy of the Lord is your strength. Check out what scripture actually says about Jesus, the one that we follow uh, and who all of this is built on. It says in Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. And so sometimes we look at Jesus, our Messiah, and we're like, that's the Jesus I relate to. That's the Jesus who was persecuted, who died on the cross, who was rejected by man. And so that's the kind of Jesus that I relate to. But listen also, Hebrews 1 verse 9 says that God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else. It says that Jesus had more joy than anyone else. He was acquainted with suffering, yes, but he also had profound joy. That's our leader. And if we don't look like Jesus, there might be a problem. See, I love this picture of Jesus. Uh, I love, well, you can tell I love humor, but, but I love that Jesus is humorous. I love that he brought laughter to earth. I, I love that joy is part of the characteristics and quality of Jesus. How many know the Holy Spirit produces joy in us? Because it's a characteristic of God. Misery doesn't make you holy, but joy makes you like Jesus. Let me say that again. Misery doesn't make you holy, but joy will make you like Jesus. John 15, 11 says, I have told you all these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. 
And he says, I want your joy to overflow. That's the Jesus that we're serving today. So we kicked off this series last week and we looked at Paul's admonition to always be full of joy. And we recognize that Paul was well aware that life isn't perfect. It's not always roses. It's not always good vibes only. In fact, Paul knew that life can often be a struggle. He was so aware of it as we recognize that he is writing this letter to the Philippians from a prison cell. He's in this place of prison as he pens these letters. And just for a quick recap, I encourage you to go back on YouTube and check out last week's message. But last week we talked about life as excuses or choices. Life happens to everyone. We can't choose what happens, but we can choose what uh, we do with it and how we respond. We talked about the idea that joy doesn't simply happen to us, but joy is a choice we make and one that we have to make every day. And so we also said this, that if joy is a choice, that you can't be robbed of your joy. The devil can't steal your joy. Your thankless kids can't steal your joy. Your hard-to-work-for boss can't steal your joy. I think last week I said the, the cat that you never wanted can't steal your joy. And uh, thankfully that problem's been rectified. The cat's still there. I mean, it's just not peeing <laughs> on the floor anymore. Your broken down car can't steal your joy. How many know sometime this week you're going to have an opportunity to say, this isn't going to steal my joy. This is making me unhappy, but it's not going to steal my joy. Right? Sometime this week, you're going to say, this is not making me happy, but I'm going to choose joy in spite. See, happiness comes from our feelings based on what's happening around us, but joy comes from choosing to have a different perspective. And so we talked last week, Paul was in a difficult place. Uh, he was in an unfavorable position, and yet he had this perspective of joy. So we want to switch gears a bit today. Paul switches his focus from having joy in whatever place we find ourselves in to maintaining joy no matter who and whatever people we find ourselves interacting with. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1, 27. We're going to continue where we left off last week. Philippians 1, 27 says this. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. We could have stopped there. There's like a whole sermon right there. It says, whenever I come and see you again, or if I only hear about you, I will know that you're standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And so we laid out last week that Paul, he's writing this to the Christians in Philippi, uh, to this church that he'd planted only 10 years uh, prior. And uh, we look at Philippi, we see this Greek city that had been colonized by Rome. And uh, they had fully adopted the Roman customs and policies and practices. And they'd pledged their allegiance to the Caesar. And so they had fully embraced Roman culture. Even though they were 800 miles from Rome, uh, Philippi was known to be like a, a bastion of Rome. It's like, I, I don't know if you've ever been to a city that had like the little neighborhoods. Like, you know, I, I was uh, in Victoria and they had, uh, you know, the 
Canada's first kind of oldest Chinatown district, right? And so you could go there and you, and so you could get a glimpse and a taste and, and the smells and the taste and the look of what it would like be like in China uh, there. And so uh, Philippi was like a taste of Rome. They had adopted it and it would become so much a part of their culture. It was like Rome away from Rome. And so that's what it was. And so just like Philippi is a taste of Rome, Paul's writing, he's saying, you know what? The church should be a taste of heaven. The church should be a taste of heaven. When we go to the church, we should be able to experience the culture and the sounds and the experience of a taste of what heaven was like. And he's writing to them, and he's saying, your city has adopted all the Roman customs, and you reflect the influence of the citizenship of Rome. He's saying to them, I want you to live as citizens of heaven. Your allegiance isn't to Caesar, but as Christians, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen? I love Canada. I love all that God's doing here. I have a passport that says I'm Canadian. But my citizenship, first and foremost, is heavenly citizenship. I am a follower and allegiant to Jesus Christ above all. It says, live as citizens of Rome. See, this church is meant to be this foreshadowing, a taste of what heaven is like. It's not always that way. We're not always perfect at it. Sometimes we're not even good at it, if we're honest, right? But that's our goal. And so Paul, he takes us to this place where, where heaven's influence on our life should be observable and countercultural to the world around us, especially in our relationships. How we deal with each other should be countercultural. Have you ever noticed this, that the majority of the conflicts and problems that you find yourself with involve other people? Right? Have you ever noticed that? You ever take inventory of all the things that disrupt your joy most frequently, usually involves other people? I don't know about you, but I find, you know, that I hardly have any arguments or disagreements. You know, when I'm left by myself, I'm hardly ever frustrated. I never have any fights, you know, when I'm by myself. But as soon as you throw in someone else, throw in your spouse or your kids or your siblings or your parents or your boss, coworkers, your neighbors, just throw in anybody, and all of a sudden there's potential for conflicts, right? There's inherent potential for people problems when you throw people into the mix. Just leave me alone, and it would be great. My joy would be made full. No. And so we want to look today at Paul's prescription and how to deal with people and people problems as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Philippians 2, verse 1. It says this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy or make my joy full by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. I love the rhetorical questions Paul's asking here. He's basically saying, has Jesus made any difference in your life? And if the answer is yes, he's saying then it better show, right? He's saying, has there been any difference? Have you benefited from belonging to Christ? Have you been comforted by his love? If yes, show me the difference by living like citizens of heaven. How many can say Jesus has made a difference in your life, right? And if he's made a difference in your life, you should see a difference in your life. 
Here's the best part. Paul says, not only will you make me happy, but it will bring joy to your life as well. The key to joyful and happy relationships is loving unity. Loving unity. And so Paul, he's writing this letter to the Philippians. He's well aware of the circumstances surrounding them. He he knows what they're facing. He's writing to this church, this 10-year-old church in the city of Philippi in this Roman uh, colony. And he understands as Jesus followers that they're facing external pressures. He, He understands that being committed to Jesus has come with some very real external pressure. There's been financial pressure. There's been vocational Relation, relational societal pressure. They are on the fringe of society as followers of Jesus. They're the outliers. They're countercultural. And because of that, they've suffered persecution. They've uh, been ostracized. And remember, Paul himself is in prison at this point for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and disrupting the cultural norm. Remember, this is where he's writing from. This isn't just kind of some idealistic ideology that Paul is writing. He's saying this is real. There's external pressure. How many know that external pressure can sometimes increase or exacerbate the internal division, right? Have you ever had external pressure from work and you come home and you kick the dog, right? Right? Maybe you have this external pressure and you come home and you yell at your kids, Right? Whatever is happening on the outside is producing something in you that causes division within the relationships around you. Paul knows this is happening even in the church. See, when things are happening beyond our control, sometimes what we do is we try to grasp or we clamp down on the things we can control, right? When, we, when things are happening outside of our control, sometimes we try to maintain or gain control by controlling the things that we can Sometimes we want to enforce our personal preferences or an agenda. Maybe you've had a boss who's pretty easygoing, but they're getting pressure from the top, and all of a sudden the boss starts micromanaging you or trying, you're not the nicest person at this time. Right? You can see the pressure coming, and they're trying to control by exerting their influence or their preference or their agenda. Paul actually alludes to this happening in the Philippian church. In Philippians 4, verse 4, he's calling, he calls out these two women. Uh, he says uh, in four, uh, 4 verse 2, sorry, he says, I appeal to Yodia and Syntyche. He says, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. How many would love, you know, if the pastor just airing out your dirty laundry? Like if I sent out a MailChimp tomorrow, as like, hey, church, here's what's going on next week. And, and by the way, you know, Katie and, and Allison, would you just settle your differences, right? That's what Paul's doing here. He says, tell Yodia and Syntyche to please settle their disagreement. But what he's really saying, don't let this be an opportunity for division. Don't let it be an opportunity for gossip or politicking. How many know when there's disunity, in, especially like in a church or in a relationship, people start taking sides of who they belong with and who they agree with, right? And you start gathering your people and telling them your side of the story. Paul's saying, don't let that bring division to the church. Sell your agreement as citizens of God. We don't want to disrupt the momentum or distract the focus. We don't want to, uh, you know, dissolve the unity or deteriorate their relationships, that are happening in this church. Here's where I've discovered people problems always, almost always boil down to one source. And the source of the problem is pride. Proverbs 13.10 says pride leads 
to conflict. Pride leads to conflict. As Paul continues in chapter 2, verse 3, he says this. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. But be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. This morning Paul would say this. Don't let pride lead your life. Don't let pride lead your life. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Verse three, I I love how the NIV actually translates this. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition or vain conceit. How many know selfish ambition is the attitude of it's all about me? It's all about me. Selfish ambition. I'm the star of the show. I'm the center of the story. Have you ever met someone like that? That everything revolves around them and everyone else is just supporting cast, right? To their story, right? That's selfish ambition. My wants, my needs, my preferences, my goals, my career, my image built around me. It was interesting uh, as we've gotten into this age of social media and they've done some uh, studies of some of the younger generation. We love the younger generation. No slam on them. But they've noticed that, you know, back in the day they'd say, well, there used to be really like, like uh, employee um, uh, loyalty to the business. People would work for the business for 40, 45 years, right? They'd be committed to making that business stronger. A few generations ago, they noticed that people were not as committed to the business. Now they're committed to a career, and the career path is uh, much shorter, much broader. People are not as loyal to one brand or business or company, but they're kind of finding their way and making their career as best they can. What they're finding now, as they're doing studies, is that people are not interested so much in their career as they are in building their brand. When they're talking to young people, they want to know, how do I build my brand? Instead of being an employee for someone else, I want to build my brand. And even if I work for you, it's about my portfolio and my CV. How am I building my brand? Isn't that interesting? They also say that there's been an incredible uh, increase in narcissism in our culture. This idea that it's all about me. You know, it's all about me. It's funny how those things go together. People problems always boil down to pride. And the Bible also tells us that pride is the root of every other sin. There was a young woman who asked for an appointment with her pastor. It wasn't me. Just heard about this story. And she asked to talk to him about a sin she was worried about. And as they met together, she said, Pastor... I've become aware of a sin in my life that seems to keep growing and I can't seem to control it. And so, well, tell me more about it. She said, well, pastor, every time I'm at church, I begin to look around at all the other women and I realize that I'm the prettiest woman in the congregation. (laughs) None of the other women compare to my beauty. Pastor, what can I do about this great sin? Pastor looked at her and said, that's not a sin, that's just a mistake. (laughs) Seriously, though, Scripture says, James 3, 15 and 16, wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, or the word pride we could put in there, there you'll find disorder and evil of every kind. Wherever you find pride, 
you'll find disorder and evil of every kind. Galatians uh, 5.19 says, when we follow the desires of our sinful nature, the results are clear. He says sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, and then look at all these other ones that go together. He says hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division. He said every time we follow our selfish nature, it does all the things that, that creates disorient, uh, um, uh, disorder in our relationships. That's what pride does. And so he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition, where it's all about me. And then he says, don't do anything out of vain conceit. I think if selfish ambition is it's all about me, I think vain conceit is I'm always right. Have you ever met that person who's always right? Right? You just can't convince them otherwise. Have you ever argued with that person? Have you ever argued with the person like, who knows that they're wrong, but they just can't stop arguing, and so they're just like, perpetuating? Have you ever been that person in the middle of the argument where you're like, I know I'm wrong, but I can't back out now, right? I, I saw a meme on the internet the other day. It just said, I, I realized I was wrong 10 minutes ago. Now I'm fighting just to make you mad, <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't let pride lead your life. Then Paul says, he says, the antidote to pride is humility. Verse 3, he says, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Rick Warren famously has said that humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. Uh, when pride places ourselves at the center of everything, humility puts the focus on others. How can we serve them? Not out of a place of subservience. This isn't saying, like, like, I'm so lowly and I'm nothing and I'm, you know, I'm dirt on the ground. It's not like that kind of, it's not humility of saying that I'm worthless, so let me serve you. It's saying, out of my strength, let me serve you. How I many know when I had a baby, I didn't go to my baby and go, like, oh, you're the, you're the you know, woo. You know, the, the goddess baby, and now I'm here to serve you, and I'm nothing, you know. No, it's out of a position of strength and power, uh, out of my ability to say, let me serve you because you're helpless, and my strength, let me come alongside of you and serve you and meet your needs, right? That's what we do when we're serving others. It's not because we are inferior to them, but out of strength, we come alongside of them and say, how can I be of help and of service to you? Now, here's the thing. That all sounds right to us, right? We don't find it hard to imagine humility as a virtue. Most of us have been taught all our lives that uh, humility is something that we uh, should show and should grow in our life. But this is actually uh, countercultural to the perspective of the Roman world. We don't understand always how fully our modern worldview has been shaped by Judeo-Christian principles. I know our world doesn't like to hear that. They don't like to know that their value system is based on Christianity. Uh, but when you go to the Parliament building in Ottawa, you'll see scripture etched in all the stones uh, of the Parliament building. And so one of the values here, what we see in the, in the Greco-Roman ethic uh, was founded on the premise, not that humility is a virtue, but that might is right. Right, the Roman and, and Greek world operated on the positions of power, uh, operated on um, uh, status. It, it was this place of like, get yours, 
And the stronger you become, the more powerful you are, the more you rise in status. That's how the, the Roman Empire was spread. And, that was, and so this message of humility is countercultural uh, in the shadow of Rome. If you look even at the Latin word for humility, it's humilitas. It has more to do with humiliation than it does with what we understand as humility today. Edwin Judge, a Roman historian, this is what he says. Humility in Greek and Roman ethic would be a degrading thing. To put yourself down to a level that you were not born to or that your standing in life did not require you to be in was disgraceful and debasing. There's no virtue in it at all. Gordon Fee, a theologian, says, Humility is a uniquely Christian value, which, like the message of the crucified Messiah, stands in utter contradiction to the values of the Greco-Roman world, which considered humility not a virtue, but a shortcoming. And so we look at this and we're like, yeah, yeah, we know humility is something that we should all aspire to, but this is countercultural in their day. Humility is expected of us, Paul is saying, as citizens not of Rome, but as citizens of heaven. He's saying we have a different ethic because we are followers and our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. How many know the Bible talks a lot about humility? Zephaniah 2.3 says, seek to do what is right and live humbly. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, serve each other in humility, for God opposes the proud, but he favors the? James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. I was thinking yesterday about what is Humility. What does that look like? I jotted down a bunch of things. I think humility is not too proud or self-sufficient to ask for help. Humility is willing to be wrong or proven wrong. I think humility is willing to say, I'm sorry. Humility is quick to ask for forgiveness. Humility is teachable. It's open to correction. It's not divisive. It's not self-seeking but willing to serve the needs of others. Here, humility is not false modesty, and it's not self-loathing. It's not the debasing ourselves. It's this realistic evaluation of ourselves, not in comparison to other people, but in light of who God is. Jesus tells us that we're loved, that we're created in his image, that we're gifted by him for his good pleasure and for his service, that he takes joy in us. We're not inferior because we're humble. We stand in the strength of who Jesus calls us to be, but we realize that we're not here only for our own enjoyment, but for God's glory and for the blessing of others. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Pastor Tim Keller, who just recently passed away, he, he wrote this. He says, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. <laughs> okay. And here's what he says. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Isn't that good? You would say, wow, they were interested in me. See, when I'm secure in who I am, I don't need to impose my will. I don't need to force my preferences on others. I don't need to uh, 
you know, advocate for my will and for my needs. I can serve others from a position of strength in a way that we both flourish. I, I love here, he doesn't, he doesn't say, like, forget your needs and serve others. He says, don't just serve your needs, but serve others too. So how do we do this? How do we enact and foster humility in our lives, especially in a world where power and self-promotion are prevalent, where self-preservation and self-advancement are the default nature? You know, it's the same. It was the same in Rome as it is today. Jesus, or Paul says this. He says, look to Christ as our example. Philippians 2, verse 5 says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Other translation says something to grasp. Come back to that in a moment. Verse 7 says, instead he gave us up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. There's so much deep theology in this one little passage. Theologians believe that this is actually a hymn that the church would have sang or would have read as a poem together. But in this, we have this theological uh, idea called kenosis. Kenosis is the idea of how did God, fully God, become fully man? Did he empty himself of being God to become man? No. Uh, was he unable to be man because he was God? No, the Bible actually says in this idea of kenosis is that God, Jesus, uh, continued to have the essence and nature. He was fully God, but he laid aside the privileges and rights that go with that to become uh, humanity. And he put on the human nature. I often, when I was a youth pastor, I'd say it's like when you get a Halloween costume on, it's a little too small for you. And, you know, you kind of get into that suit and you would put it on. If you ever put on, like, clothes that are too small, for you, you know, and you're kind of like, you're kind of restricted, right? Like, you can't put your arms up because the sleeves are too tight, right? That's kind of what Jesus did, in my opinion. You know, he came, he put on the man suit, the humanity suit. He put it on, he goes, this is a lot more restrictive than what I could do when I was God, right? Bible says that he functioned under the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm giving up those privileges. I'm going to show you how to interact with God by doing it myself. I'm going to put all the limitations you have on my Myself, and I'm going to follow under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit to do what God's called me to do. He's modeling for us uh, what God has called us to do. But that's the idea of kenosis. But it says here that humility doesn't grasp. He didn't hold on to the power and privileges of heaven. Humility doesn't grasp at accolades or credit. Doesn't grasp at positions or power. And some theologians look at this passage and they make this contrast that just like Jesus didn't grasp onto the things of heaven and hold on to them, they contrast it with Adam. Adam in the garden. What happened in the garden of, of, of Eden? Right? It says that Adam reached out and he grasped for the fruit. He took what wasn't rightfully his and he took it. And why did the Bible say that they did it? Because the, the Satan and the serpent had tempted them to say, you know, what, what is God keeping from you? If you do this, you will become like God. And so Adam reached out and grasped for something that wasn't his. And so Jesus let go of the thing that was rightfully his. I, I, we do this little contrast. See, Adam, uh, scriptures actually talk about the first Adam and the second Adam. 
Just the first Adam came and he sinned and sin entered the world. The Bible says the second Adam came and that he brought righteousness. And so if you contrast these two Adams, the first Adam was made in the image of God. Second Adam was God. Isn't that amazing? The first Adam wanted to be like God. And the second Adam took on the likeness of humanity. The first Adam wanted to exalt himself. The second Adam emptied himself. The first Adam rejected God's word and sinful disobedience. Like we just sang in that hymn a few moments ago, the second Adam humbly submitted himself to God's word and perfect obedience. And through this, the first Adam brought a curse to the world. The second Adam took on the curse for the world and brought freedom and salvation. Here's the thing Paul says. I forget about me when I think about what Jesus has done. The antidote to pride is thinking about what Jesus has done on our behalf. It brings humility. It doesn't debase us, but it brings us into this proper place of recognizing who we are before God, who we are alongside other people. Let me finish this passage together, and we're gonna wrap up in worship and prayer in just a moment. Philippians 2, 9 says this. Therefore, after Jesus took on this humble position, it says, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, and he gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Jesus, and letting go of what was rightfully his so that we could receive what wasn't rightfully ours has come to this place now where God has positioned himself to be the Lord and the Savior and the King of this universe. I'm gonna ask you to stand this morning. This passage, if you read it, says the question isn't will you recognize Jesus as Lord of your life, but when will you recognize Jesus? Bible says that there's a time where we're all gonna stand before the throne of God and give an account for how we lived our lives. We don't wanna wait till it's too late. Maybe you're here this morning and you're listening to this and it's the, the first time you've heard this message. Maybe it's a message you've heard before but haven't given much attention to. One day, this isn't to scare you. This is, to, this is amazing, this is to encourage you one day. You'll stand before God. That doesn't have to be an intimidating day. That can be a celebration day. Say, Jesus, I made you Lord of my life. I lived for you while I could. Today is the day that you can say, that's what I want to do. Is there anyone in this place that you would just raise your hand and say, Pastor Joe, would you pray for me today? I need to make that decision to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I don't want to wait till it's too late. I want to do it now while there's still a chance, while there's still hope for me to live my life for him. Anyone in this place today, I'd love to pray for you for making that decision. Amen. How many would say, you know what, Pastor Jer, I could use a good dose of humility. I could do it. Maybe you're the humblest person. You're like, I could just grow in this more and more. As I look at Jesus and what he's done, I still got a long way to go. I'm putting my hand out. Say, Jesus, help me. Help me to grow. Help me to be an ambassador of yours. Help me to live so countercultural to the way this world lives that people look at me and go, you're different because of the humility on your life. Father, I pray for my friends today. 
I pray as we leave this place that there would be a, a movement, a stirring as we all go our ways in unity, as we're unity for the kingdom of God, in the things of God, encouraging each other, spurring each other on. I pray that there would be such a movement and a momentum in the city, in this region, that you would come and that you would bless it with your supernatural move of God, yes. But I pray that you would help us to do what you've called us to do as the church of God here and now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.